The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Today, I've got a great show. We're going to talk a little bit about what we always talk about, which is the virtues of free market health care and the horrors of government-run, socialized, one-size-fits-all, top-down health care. And uh, I've been doing this show now for a couple of years, and I really have just been wanting to take time to share my experiences with people and my wisdom. And I don't say that from a a position of conceit, but I've been thinking a lot about the way debate is going in this country on just about every issue. And I feel like I have something to add to the conversation just because I've spent a lifetime in academia, in medicine, in business, and I've learned some things along the way. And what I've learned is mostly wisdom. And in order to understand that, we probably first need to understand what is wisdom. And wisdom is the knowledge of things that don't change. So, for example, knowledge would be knowing that a tomato is fruit. Wisdom would be knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. I'm always counseling my medical students and my PA students and my nursing students that in life, when things are a saying, you should pay attention to them. For example, the early bird gets the worm is something that's become part of the lexicon of our society, and it's become that because it's wisdom. It's a function of things that don't change. It's knowledge of things that don't change. And sadly, wisdom is something that comes from experience. And another statement that I've always heard that I always thought was a great one is, is good decision-making really comes from bad decision-making. In fact, you have to go through your life, you make some bad decisions, you learn not to do that again, and eventually you start making better decisions. And if somebody can gain wisdom beyond their years, then they would do a lot more listening when they're young to older folks and uh, a lot less talking. And I see, I used to see this when I was in college, I went to UC Berkeley, which is known for being a very politically active, uh, far left wing uh, institution. And when I was in school, I was focused uh, more on sports and girls and, uh, you know, not really paying attention to to adult concepts. I had no idea of a political left and right. I always tell the story about being in my freshman history class and the professor was giving a lecture and he was talking about blah, blah, blah on the right and blah, blah, blah on the left and blah, blah, blah on the right and on the left. And I was wondering, why does he keep, why does he keep telling us where they're sitting? And I turned to my friend and I nudged him and I said, why does he keep telling us where they're sitting? And it's funny to me when I think back on it that I literally had no concept of a political right and a political left. I used to be on campus and we would see the protesters at Berkeley protesting everything. I mean everything from apartheid to animal rights uh, to, um, uh, you know, um, gay rights and all sorts of things. I mean, it was always something and they were always very angry, very vitriolic. 
And I remember I used to think to myself, you know, I'm 20 years old. You guys are 20 years old. You're very passionate. You're very opinionated. And you're really kind of hostile. And I used to wonder, why are you like that? Because I'm 20 and I know I don't know anything. So I know you don't know anything either. And I thought to myself, we should do a lot more listening. My mother always used to say that when you're young, you need to do a lot more listening and a, and a lot less talking until you gain some life experience and some wisdom. And a, largely your wisdom comes through experience. Now, when I think of intelligence, uh, I don't have a ton of it. I think of myself as a very average person. I was an average athlete. Uh, I wasn't really fast. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have great leaping ability. I didn't have a lot of quickness. But what I did have was hustle and tenacity. And, you know, my father used to always tell me the one thing you can control out there all the time, even if you're having a bad game, is you can control your hustle. And I once had a coach describe me to another coach as the greatest overachiever athlete of all time. And I'm very proud of that because... I took what I had from athletic ability and I made the most of it. And when I was young, I was hoping to be a professional soccer player and that didn't happen for me. I just was not blessed with the speed and quickness and all that 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 one needed to become a professional athlete. And so I had to take a different direction in life and it, it, it led me to becoming a doctor. And when I got into academics, you know, I'm not the smartest kid in the world. I have a reading disability. I was a B student my whole life, even through college. I couldn't get into med school because I had a low GPA and because I did poorly on the medical college admissions test. And then I, uh, I eventually went back to grad school when I really got my mind focused on the, on the fact that I wanted to be a doctor and I really felt that God was calling me to do this. And I really put everything I had into becoming the best student that I could. I went to school to learn how to read again with my reading disability. I had help from mentors who alerted me to the fact that I did have a reading disability. I've shared this story before that on my journey to try and get into medical school, I went to Georgetown University and I spoke to one of the doctors there and she took one look at my my grades and my MCAT scores and she immediately told me you have a reading disability and I thought to myself well how, how could you tell that from from just looking at my MCAT scores and she said well you scored so high in the sciences and so low in the reading she goes people who don't even speak English could do better than you on the reading and I thought well that makes me feel great and I asked her what's the difference between having a reading disability and just being too stupid to be a doctor and she said it's not that you're not smart it's you have the ability to understand complex issues it's just your processing is broken and there are ways around it and so she directed me to the disabled student unions at uc berkeley i went there i got tested found out i had a horrible reading disability spent a year learning how to read i eventually got my mcat scores up really high i got good grades in graduate school i got into medical school and then that's where the race began so now i want to become an orthopedic surgeon and the only way to get into orthopedic surgery, or at least the, it's very difficult to get into orthopedic surgery if you're not at the top of your class because everybody wants to be an orthopedic surgeon because it's a lot of fun. And so I knew in order to be competitive and have an opportunity to get into an orthopedic surgery residency, I'd have to graduate near the top of my class. And I was really worried about that. And um, I didn't have the tools. Uh, you know, I wasn't the smartest person in the world. I wasn't a speed reader by any sense of the imagination. But I, what I did have was hard work. 
and I had learned that from uh, my parents. I learned that from all my other activities like sports and other things to control what I can control and work hard. And I ended up graduating fourth in my medical school class. And I eventually got into orthopedic surgery, and then it turned out I had a real aptitude for orthopedic surgery, uh, which was ironic because none of the things that they use – I shouldn't say none of the things, but a lot of the criteria that they use to select out for orthopedic surgeons, like being good at standardized tests, which I'm not – um, you know, and, you know, being really smart and academic doesn't really translate a lot into the way we have to spatially evaluate fractures and when we do surgeries, how we have to put that together in our minds. It's just a different sort of skill set. And I just happen to have a gift for that. And it's, it's funny to me. I feel like God was preparing me in all these different endeavors in my life to get there. And I, and I do have a point to what I'm saying. When I was in medical school, I worked so hard, harder than I could ever work again. I oftentimes I'll think about, uh, you know, gosh, if I could be young again and be fit and, you know, maybe get a six pack again someday. Uh, but then I think to myself, gosh, I'd have to go to medical school again. And that's absolutely out of the question. I could never do it. I studied so hard. It, it, it's like I think back on it and I just can't imagine doing it again. I mean, for two straight years studying, you know, four to eight hours a day, sometimes more. Um, you know, every single day for two years, except for 12 days, every six weeks, we had these exam sets and all these difficult classes and you felt the weight of the world on you. It's my entire life is, is dependent on this exam set. And if I miss one question, I risk my whole life. It was really a stressful time, uh, but it built my character and it compelled me to learn the medicine very well. If I hadn't had that aspiration to be an orthopedic surgeon and that goal to want to someday have what I have today, which is my own orthopedic clinic and, you know, the ability to take care of people. If I hadn't had that drive, I could never have studied that hard. Say, if if all I was going to be was a bureaucrat in a government-run healthcare system, I could have never studied that way and I would have been a much poorer doctor. And so when I look back on things, I feel like what my skill is, is I am an average person who worked really hard to learn a lot of complicated stuff in medicine, economics, academia, and I feel like I can take this complicated stuff and explain it in a simple way to people so that we can can make better decisions about our lives. And I was listening to uh, the uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is the founder of The Daily Wire. And he's a young conservative pundit and a very smart guy. I've never met him. I don't know him. But I was listening to one of his uh, uh, lectures. He goes and he gives lectures on these college campuses. And most of the people on these college campuses hate him because he's a, a right-wing conservative person. And they show up to have these debates. And these kids get up there and they'll ask him questions. And it's very common for them to to sort of attack him. And I was coming across this one kid that I think is absolutely indicative of what's wrong with our country in terms of debate and this concept that we have now with these so-called fact checkers and this concept of misinformation and hate speech that's really just censorship of ideas you don't like. And I want to draw some connections for people so that we can start making better decisions. Um, David, go ahead and let's play cut one of this young kid at Ben Shapiro's lecture on a college campus. 
I'm a mathematician and a physicist here, a double major, and I also just won the most prestigious award in the country to pursue research at any institution I want, the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. So I think I'm pretty you know, qualified to say that most of what you're saying is based on like old data. Um, but my question to you, I, so I want you to like, realize last that. Month, but sure. um, like, for example, gender identity disorder, that's the DSM-4, bro. We use the DSM-5 now for psychologists to be able to talk about... I literally about cited the DSM-5 in the speech, and it's called gender dysphoria, which is I the term that I use throughout the speech, not gender you identity disorder. You sound like disorder, a bozo, bro. And you get no <laughs> and you can't even make your wife bro, so what's good? <laughs> okay, so there's so much to unpack there. This guy reminds me of so many people that uh, I came across when I was at Berkeley. The smug, he, he's a young kid... He really has no life experience at this point. He's, I guess, studying to be a mathematician or he has some sort of degree, which, listen, a degree means absolutely nothing. I graduated fourth at my medical school class, and it means absolutely nothing. That's just a requisite to get to the starting line of life and now go and actually compete in the practice of medicine. That's where the real game is. And we have so many of these young people that feel like they get a degree and that that's the end and that they should be compensated with millions of dollars in a corner office and they don't have to work and they don't have to defend anything they ever say again. And, and this kid is just so emblematic of so many others. And it's really quite stunning. This, this technique of an argument from authority is always used. And I, you know, it's, it's very juvenile. And a lot of these kids are very juvenile, what we call concrete thinkers. They don't really have the ability to have this sort of erudite thought process. It's just very concrete. The taller glass has more in it without any understanding that, well, maybe the shorter glass is a little fatter, a little wider, has a greater diameter. And so actually there could be more water in the short glass rather than the tall glass. These kids, they're very concrete in their thought processes. And uh, he tries to do this argument from authority. I have a degree, and therefore what I say goes. The next thing he does is he tries to make this argument that you quoted the DSM-4, bro, and it's the DSM-5 now. Well, there are a lot of comparisons between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5. Not everything changes from one to another, and there is still a lot in the DSM-4 that is still relevant. And to try and and discredit uh, Ben Shapiro's argument simply because he thought he cited the DSM-4. Now, worse, Ben Shapiro didn't cite the DSM-4, which I thought would have been perfectly fine anyway. He cited the DSM-5. And so when challenged with that, this young person who's losing his argument from authority, he's losing his argument on, bro, the DSM-4, it's so smug. Oh, I just can't stand it. I hate these people when they're like that. Uh, he then goes to the ad hominem attacks of attacking uh, Ben Shapiro, you know, saying that he couldn't get his wife, you know. Uh, this is just grotesque. And sadly, uh, the, this is what is happening in our country. And we have this this idea that that uh, you can only know things if you have a degree. And one of the things that's really nefarious about this is it allows the the society to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak, meaning I'm going to select certain people to get certain credentials, and then we're going to refer to them as the experts. That's the big thing we see all these days is the experts. And, you know, the classic one was uh, during the... Uh, the election campaign where 
Hunter Biden's laptop was out there with all the corruption that's on there, which, by the way, is still just being ignored by the media and everybody else. And during the election, we had so-called 50 experts from the from the uh, intelligence community say that the information on their Hunter Biden laptop was misinformation, Russian misinformation. And it was just ended debate. And after the election passed, which there are uh, polls out there that show that there was a significant number of people whose vote changed because they thought that the laptop was misinformation because the so-called 50 experts in the intelligence community said it was that after the election, then it's like, okay, yeah, the Hunter Biden laptop issue is not Russian disinformation. It's true. And yet we still just go on with these experts. They do the same thing with um they did the same thing with COVID, right? Uh, the CDC made a statement, and if anybody tried to argue against it, they were accused of of uh, spreading misinformation and disinformation. And we, I've uh, demonstrated on this show before that many of the medical boards actually threatened the licenses of their of the doctors in in those specialties uh, with punitive uh, uh, damages or, or punishment. If they suggested that vaccines didn't work or the masks didn't work, and uh, let's that's a good lean, and let's play uh, cut number two there. So we really want to to to, to base our treatment and uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth. <laughs> Not to limit their participation in activities and sports and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state. Just heard right there is Rachel Levine, used to be Richard Levine, but he uh, had uh, a transformation into a female and now goes by the name of Rachel Levine. And for those of you who don't know, that is currently the Surgeon General of the United States. The Surgeon General of the United States is not a doctor. She's a nurse, or he's a nurse, or she's, I'm not even sure. Uh, and what you are hearing this person of authority say is that we need to endorse gender-affirming medical treatment. Now, what does that mean? They use these benign terms, gender-affirming medical treatment. Well, we're talking about transing young people, kids, okay? And what are the... What are the medical tools that we use to trans kids? Well, there's hormone treatment, so uh, injecting testosterone into females and suppressing testosterone uh, in young females, which has permanent serious damage to these kids. This is child abuse, in my opinion. I don't know if I'm even allowed to do that anymore. That's one of the sad things these days is I'm doing this podcast uh, because I just want to share my life experience with people, and I have to worry all the time, am I going to be canceled? Am I going to be attacked? And am I going to be threatened? And I'm sim- sim- simply thinking out loud here and sharing my opinions. And in my opinion, offering hormone replacement therapy to adolescent kids is child abuse. It has a demonstrable just it is a matter of fact that it is causing physical permanent damage to these kids and we know that that uh, a significant a higher percentage more than half i want to say it's around 80% of uh kids that undergo uh gender reassignment uh procedures uh regret it okay they it's not effective and so to have a child that is suffering confusion about gender identity 
and to then get in there with a hormone replacement therapy is just malpractice at this point. But we see it coming down from the top. And for me to even make the statement that I disagree with this wholeheartedly will get me labeled misinformation because I'm not designated the Surgeon General. Never mind that in this particular case, I'm the MD and the Surgeon General is not. You know, and if you take it a step further, more of gender affirming uh, treatment involves surgical castration of boys uh, and uh, and uh, surgical manipulation of girls. Now, this is beyond uh, just beyond the pale. And I just don't understand how we've gotten to this point where this just radical uh, uh, point of view has gotten to be mainstream and that this is what is stated from the top and that people who who uh, oppose this uh, are sort of labeled spreaders of misinformation and conspiracy theorists and we're going to have fact checkers uh, get on me uh you know to say you know try and find anything that that I say that's even remotely um uh you know can be construed as inaccurate to discredit the whole concept of what I'm saying and um we have got to get past this point. And what I'm trying to get everybody to sort of understand is this is happening on a daily basis in all walks of life, medicine included. They're trying to eliminate debate. They try to use this argument from authority. They constantly are throwing experts in our face, despite the fact that experts are wrong all the time. But it never seems to dissuade them. They just move on as if, you know, once they accomplish one task, uh, for example, everybody needs to get the vaccine because it's 100 effective, 100% effective at preventing, uh, you from getting COVID. If you get the vaccine, you can't get COVID. This is what the experts say. Then everybody goes and gets uh, vaccinated and then let's play the next cut. Um, menstruating cycles and how that is affected by vaccines. Yeah, though, well, the menstrual thing, uh, is, is something that seems to be quite transient and, and temporary. That's the point. That's one of the points. We need to study it more. Listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci, and everybody knows who he is. He's on Brett Bear's show, and Brett Bear is questioning him about these effects, these negative deleterious effects that the vaccines seem to be having on menstrual cycles in women. And Fauci is saying, well, you know, it seems to be transitory. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but we're going to have to study it more. No, wait, 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 wait. Just, no, stop for a minute. I thought you were a known spreader of misinformation if we suggested that there could be any deleterious side effects from this new experimental vaccine. Uh, I can remember being censored, attacked, as others have. And now Fauci, after everybody's been vaccinated, has the temerity to go on there and act as if, well, you know, we need to study it more. That's what we were saying. (laughs) That's what we were saying on this show was the very concept of it's a risk assessment. You have this new experimental vaccine that we don't really have long-term data on. I've explained to you guys how the science was very simple to be able to understand why it might cause a problem. You've got this vaccine that is introducing mRNA that is causing our cells in our body to exhibit a spike protein that is stimulating our immune systems to attack. And it was very predictable that like, hey, maybe this could have an effect on things like menstruation. And we asked those questions and we were immediately labeled spreaders of misinformation and all the rest. This has got to stop. 
this siloing of information, this concept of only the Surgeon General and only Dr. Fauci and only the CDC have the capacity to to share what is truth, we've got to get past this. Now, I want to try and give you guys, you know, one of the things I always think to myself is my my what I have to share with you is not my education. I graduated fourth in my medical school class, so nobody can ever contradict me on anything medical because I got this degree 30 years ago, and, you know, I pretty much know everything more than everybody else except for three other people. Uh, this is utterly ridiculous. 30 years ago, I was competing in an academic setting, and I was able to achieve a level of success uh, because I put the work in. I mean, let's just say it right there. There were a lot of people in that medical school class that were a heck of a lot smarter than I was. I just outworked almost everybody, and I did all the best I could. And, in fact, the three people who beat me, I could never beat them. I just didn't have that ability. I couldn't read faster. I didn't have the skill set to be able to overcome that. But, and, you know, I also got lucky. You know, the difference between number four and, you know, number 20 is is not much. You know, there's a, a and so there was some luck in there too, a, a lucky guess here and a lucky guess there on a, a question or a, a certain professor who grades a little bit easier than another over the course of four years. There's a lot that goes into that. And the point I'm trying to make is, one of the wisdom things that I've come across in my life is I don't give preferential uh, deference to the comments or the arguments of people based on their position, based on their academic pedigree. Um, I care about what they've done. And people that have accomplished things in the real world that uh, that have something to say, that's worth listening to. And that's not even to say that everything they say is correct. We live in a world where we always have to be in control of our own destiny. And we all want to be able to cede some of our life to somebody else because we don't want to put the work in. And sadly, that's just not the way the world works. You have to be responsible for your own money. You have to be responsible for your own children. You have to be responsible for your own life because nobody in this world will look out for you as well as you will look after yourself. And we have to constantly work to uh, create a world that empowers individuals to look out for themselves and I would argue that we also have to work on a society that develops compassion and integrity and a spirit of giving and a spirit of caring and a spirit of empathy. But that comes from personal interactions. That doesn't come from government edicts. Now, when we talk about medicine, one of the first places we always start is in any economic so that's the other thing. We need to talk about economics here because there's some craziness going on with the economics of things, and we're going to have to understand that a little bit as well. And there, when you look at economics, there are only two ways to allocate scarce resources, and we talk about it all the time on this show. You can have a market, a free market economy, or you can have rationing, which is by some sort of government entity that is a top-down, one-size-fits-all, very limited way of thinking. And, you know, the argument against markets is always that, uh, well, people in a market, in free markets, they're only comp- uh, concerned with profit and they only care about making money and they're somehow evil people or they have uh, poor character. And I'm thinking to myself, 
When did anybody ever get the idea that government bureaucracies have any sort of compassion or any sort of empathy or any sort of 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 uh, goodwill towards people? They don't. They're some of the most corrupt, and I would argue the dumbest uh, group of people to lead us. And uh, I would just say, by example, uh, what did they have? They they in Houston recently just had this buyback program for guns. So they uh, were, were having this buyback program, and some kid went and used a 3D printer and printed 50 guns, or actually maybe he printed 62 guns, and uh, he sold them back at the buyback for $50 a pop. And you might laugh at it and say, well, that's kind of funny, but this is how government spends money. They don't think through problems. They don't take any they don't experience any consequences for their problems. So they do this stupid program, this stupid buyback program. Kid prints guns and then goes and sells them back and makes all this money, and the government is not held accountable for that. If you were doing this in a free market, you'd go out of business for your stupidity and quite correctly. And this is my point. Free markets are wonderful ways to allocate resources because they engage voluntary interaction from the buyer and voluntary interaction from the seller. And the best thing about markets is you have competitions that help people on on the honest, you know, on the up and up. They keep people straight. And a lot of times people would ask me, how much would you sell something for? And my answer is always, I would sell it for as much as I could get. And the only thing that keeps me from selling it for, for what I want is is there are two things. There are certain limits. Uh, this is just fundamental to economics. Uh, if I wanted a Coke and, uh, you know, there's only a certain number I would pay for that Coke, I wouldn't pay $100 for a Coke, and nobody would because nobody really wants a Coke. So there's a certain number that people won't exceed. But the other thing is <clears throat> the people who can provide me with the Coke at the lowest price uh, that's where I'm going to get my Coke. And that's what competition does. That's what the free market has been shown to do over ages and ages is you get the highest number of choices at the lowest price and you get the highest quality because it's this competition that's constantly uh, being forced to come up with a better product and deliver it in a better way. Uh, to encourage people to buy your product over somebody else. And if you can figure out a way to deliver that product for a lower price, you're going to beat out your competition. Now, this is true in healthcare. Uh, and the, the other thing is true, too. If there's no reward for what we're asking people to do in medicine, they're going to stop doing it. And I would just tell you, if you told me that no matter where I graduated in my class, I was going to get the same job and I was going to have the same bureaucratic position with the same ceiling on what I could accomplish in life, I would have put in a million-fold less effort in medical school. I would have just barely passed and I'd be a much different doctor today than I was in a competitive marketplace where I was putting absolutely every single thing I had into learning my craft. Now, we're going to get a little bit more into this after the break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. We're broadcasting you from America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We were talking a little bit about the difference between free market health care and socialized medicine, a one-size-fits-all, government-run, top-down, bureaucratic nightmare, which we are descending into every day. And we're going to have to make a epic change in the way we are doing things, and that's going to start at the ballot box. Now, we're living in a world where more and more speech is being censored, where uh, they're using terms like hate speech and spreader of misinformation. They're using these arguments of authority like the CDC says something, and so if you say anything against the CDC, you're risking your license and, you know, your medical license. You're listening, being punished and threatened by the medical boards. And so what we're seeing is this cooling effect on any sort of debate in healthcare, and it's and it's working, I'm telling you. I, I feel like I'm probably one of the more outspoken kind of people, just my age, my, you know, I'm at a certain stage of my career where I'm a little bit less... Uh, you know, less worried about, you know, professors and employers and things like that. When I was younger, I definitely would be keeping my mouth shut more. We've seen how people are just being shut down uh, left and right. And uh, we have been attacked on this radio program for talking about COVID and suggesting that masks are uh, not effective. Uh, now, this is not me uh, being crazy. It's not me learning any any new information since the pandemic started. It was just me knowing from medical school. We st- we've been studying this for decades and decades, and the cloth and paper masks didn't work. Uh, I also know about COVID in the sense I know about coronavirus. I know about influenza-like viruses. We talked about the fact that uh, these viruses were, uh, there was the possibility that the vaccines would not be effective and that 
there would be some sort of risk assessment, meaning you have this new experimental vaccine that we don't have long-term data. I just played for you, Dr. Fauci, kind of being stunned when Brett Baer brought up the fact that there are these some issues with the vaccine is affecting the menstrual cycle, and he's trying to, uh, well, you know, uh, this just seems to be transient, and we need to do more studies. Well, duh. That's what we were saying on this show when we got labeled known spreaders of misinformation. Um, let's play this uh, let next cut, David. This is a good one. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Uh, before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Mansky, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? Many women, cis women. They're, you're okay. You're not going to. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey, folks. Guess you heard this morning. I tested positive for COVID. And when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Dr. Fauci says he has COVID again. If you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID nineteen. And this morning, I learned I I tested positive for COVID nineteen as well. The three doses that you've been prevented, not just from serious illness, but from getting this virus, this Omicron variant, and therefore giving it to others. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is in quarantine for seven days after testing positive to COVID. So I, I'm fully vaccinated. It gives me some comfort. Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, having received two doses of AstraZeneca, it's a very effective vaccine protection from symptomatic illness and therefore risk of transmission to others. The so-called experts describing all of their experiences with COVID and despite being vaccinated, getting getting the virus. And I guess we're just all being conditioned to have to acquiesce to what the experts say, that if anybody tries to make an argument that defies the experts, that that person is vilified and attacked. And, you know, if possible, the people that want to silence them will attack their job, their ability to make a living, will... Uh, you know, make it so they can't travel. They'll make it so the kids can't go to school. And we're just kind of getting used to this. We're just getting used to these experts. And I would just say part of my wisdom, you know, and, and when I say wisdom, I don't mean that from a conceited point of view. I mean that from I just have spent time in medicine and academia and and uh, I've just experienced some stuff. And one of the things I'm always counseling my medical students on is, we don't do diagnosis by MRI. So it's very common in medicine. You get an MRI, a radiologist reads it, and they make all these comments about what they're finding there. And the reality is they're not really accurate about a lot of that stuff. And I learned this when I was doing my residency down at the University of Miami. There was a fellowship down there with radiologists who were trying to become high-level sports medicine doctors. And we would sit for hours and hours reviewing these MRIs and these these uh, fellows, uh, which are people who finish a residency in radiology and they're getting additional training to be expert sports medicine radiologists, they would talk about the subtleties that they were seeing on the MRI about damage to this and that. And then as the surgeons, we would go in and we would be looking directly at the tissues and I would notice that a lot of what they said was just not true, not even close. And so today when I read MRI, I see what the radiologists say, I examine patients and I know 
uh, they're saying they see this or they're saying they don't see this, but I know for a fact that it may or may not be there. And so over time, I've kind of learned to read MRI. Now, I'm not saying MRIs don't provide great information. They do. All I'm saying is that when the so-called experts or radiologists read something, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to make is I have learned through the years that that people with high academic pedigree, people that have positions of authority are not always right. And so I was once told by one of my mentors to always keep my brain on and always think for myself and always make sure that everything I do makes sense to me and that if it doesn't, you need to investigate it further. And one of the things that I've also learned is if most things, I would say just about everything in life should be um people should have the ability to explain it. And I'm always telling people or counseling people when you're doing a business deal or any kind of deal at all, if you don't understand what's going on, then chances are you're getting scammed. I mean, that's just kind of a rule of thumb, but it's true. And when I was young and I was doing my first businesses, uh, my first medical practices, you know, the ones that went bankrupt because I didn't know what I was doing and I was naive in that I trusted everyone. I felt that people were honest and, and all that. And, you know, they're not uh, necessarily. And uh, so I would sit at these tables and people would be articulating these very complex business uh, situations, and I'd I'd be sitting there thinking, like, I literally don't have an I don't understand one word they're saying, and it's embarrassing. I mean, I'm a doctor, and I'm sitting at this table of all these smart people, and they know what's going on, and I don't. It's embarrassing, and I would keep my mouth shut, and then it's like, okay, sign this personal guarantee, and I would do it. Today, <laughs> I'll sit there in front of these people, and they'll be explaining something, and even if it's legit, if I don't understand it, I'll be, you know, listen, I don't get it. And so I'm not going to participate. And, I mean, there are things from people I even trust. For example, I have a buddy of mine that we talk about uh, purchasing properties for, for new uh, new offices and things like that. And he's always talking to me about cap rate and how you get the cap rate up and all this kind of stuff. You buy it. You put it a long lease. It's complicated. But I don't understand it. And so I always tell him, like, listen, keep telling me about it. But I'm not going to do it until I can understand it. And that's always kind of served me well that I've been doing that. We need to do the same thing in medicine. And we need to do the same thing in economics. When I think about the economics um, of things, uh, we realize that the disastrous Inflation Reduction Act just got passed. Another seven uh, $750 billion, almost a trillion dollars of money that we don't have uh, being being printed. We don't have it, so we're printing it. And this is going to go into all kinds of special interests. So basically, again, the government is stealing money from all of us because when they print money, they're basically diluting the value of the money that we have in our bank, the money that we have under our pillow. The, the money that we have invested, it's all being deflated, and it's essentially a tax on all of us. And we don't have $750 billion. And they continue to be able to pass these bills that I just don't understand how people are tolerating this, where they have these mega bills that nobody reads. They pass them. They all stand behind the president with big smiling faces, slapping themselves on the back. And uh, nobody has any idea where this money is going and, of course, nobody has any idea where the money is coming from, too. Uh, they don't care. And if we don't start caring, we're going to be in a bad way. And I noticed one of the things that's in the hilariously 
named Inflation Reduction Act. That's always kind of the other thing, too, is they always title these things the opposite of what they do, the Inflation Reduction Act. The CBO even says that the Inflation Reduction Act is not going to reduce inflation, but they figure, ah, just call it the Inflation Reduction Act and everybody will be fine with it. But one of the things that's in the Inflation Reduction Act is a price cap on prescription prescription drugs. Now, when people are polled, apparently 76% of people approve of this, of this government um, spurious declaration that they're going to put a cap on prescription drugs. And I'm always thinking to myself, how do you put a cap on pricing? That's just not how markets work. There is a cost to producing a product. If you build a widget, if you produce a widget, there is a cost to that. There's energy costs, there's lights, uh, you've got your payroll, you got your employees, there's taxes, uh, there's rent. All of these things go into the cost of what it takes to produce this thing, and then you have to make a profit. And again, what is that profit going to be? Well, it's going to be whatever whatever I can get away with. Now, if you're selling an iPhone, they're making a ton of profit. Now, God bless them, but they are making they are able to sell an iPhone for a heck of a lot more than it costs them to make it. Uh, now, I have no love for the pharmaceutical companies. What has gone down in the last two years is just unbelievable in terms of the fake studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet to discredit hydroxychloroquine, uh, to all the mandates that we had to take these vaccines. And now I have to listen to Fauci saying, well, you know, about this menstrual thing, you know, we just, we don't know. We're going to have to study it more after everybody's already been forced to take it. I'm going to be playing audio of these people, uh, the HHS Director Walensky talking about what vaccines can't do anymore is prevent transmission. I mean, all the stuff that they told us uh, is turning out not to be true. And now we got this price cap on prescription drugs in the hilarious, uh, hilariously named Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I was listening to a radio show on the weekend. It was on Breitbart and it was, uh, the show was called Stacy on the Right. And she had some expert on there that supposedly is one of the good guys, uh, talking about the, the fact that the price transparency legislation that came in under the Trump administration is pretty much just being ignored by the hospital system. So, during the Trump administration, they had this law that was passed that said that hospitals had to publish their prices so that we didn't get any of this surprise, uh, this surprise billing. And of course, the hospitals are not doing it, but this person was trying to make the argument that if we were to just see the prices, that that would fix healthcare. And to me, it just, Illustrates a fundamental lack of understanding of what is wrong with our healthcare system and why we're losing control of it and why we have uh, such high costs. And you know the problem is, is that the the powers that be have been very clever at getting government control of healthcare by getting Medicare and Medicaid. So in 1965, we came out with Medicare and Medicaid. So it was basically government-run socialized medicine for the old and for the young or the poor. They also have developed S-CHIP since then, which is for the young. So the 
people that want this government control of health care, eating away at the edges slowly over time. So, uh, you know, people that want free markets are kind of like, well, you know, it's just old people and it's just uh, poor people. I mean, who could be against that? I'll just, you know, make my living here in the middle with health insurance. And then slowly over time, Medicare starts to control policy and medicine. And so I know because I'm negotiating contracts with these insurance companies, the private insurance companies, and their their policy, their contracts that I have to sign are coming from Medicare. So Medicare is de facto controlling the health insurance industry. And then you get these hospital systems, which I've been trying to explain to you. The hospital systems are just like teachers unions. Hospital systems in a city get all the money from Medicare and Medicaid. So when people go to these hospitals, uh, the system is designed to take advantage of what Medicare and Medicaid will reimburse. So getting CT scans, getting MRIs, doing certain tests. That's why when you go to the emergency room, I just brought my mom there. They're going to do all these crazy tests, and you're going to sit there and go, wow, this seemingly has nothing to do with you know, my mom or my dad's problem, but why are they doing it? And the answer is because Medicare will pay for it. It's just a scam so that, that these hospital systems get this money, and then we've demonstrated on this show with uh, – uh, Studies that show the reimbursement that goes back to the politicians in these city is largely for politicians who approve these increasing reimbursements through Medicare and Medicaid to the hospital systems. And if a politician ever says, listen, I'm not going to support this, you know, this allocation of government resources to reimburse more in this, they, they get voted out of office. And so we have this revolving door where politicians vote to get more money reimbursed to these hospital systems for Medicare and Medicaid type stuff. And you might say to yourself, well, what's the downside of having more money allocated for Medicare and Medicare? It's because the resources aren't used logically. It's just, hey, they do knee braces uh, for Medicare. And so everybody gets a knee brace. And you, you might, you know, it's like, uh, hey, doc, nothing's wrong with my knee. And they say, oh, don't even worry about it. It's free. Yeah, it's free to you. But it's not free to the system, and it jacks the price up. On top of that, with the passage of Obamacare, where the decreasing reimbursement, this has been going on over time, has pretty much driven most doctors out of business. Uh, this is simply a fact. Before the passage of the Obamacare legislation, uh, <clears throat> a greater majority of doctors were uh, had independently owned businesses. Since the passage, now the majority of doctors are employed by these hospital systems, and we've talked about it on this show over and over again about how this perverse relationship has negatively impacted the doctor-patient relationship. And so what happens is the doctors have a greater fidelity to their employer than they do to their patient. And that's because the employer is putting pressure on them. For example, we've talked about the fact that your readmission rate within 30 days as a doctor is a measure of, you know, a measure, an arbitrary measure of your quality as a doctor. So if I discharge a patient and I have to readmit them within 30 days, the hospital is going to make that a knock against me and consider me a bad doctor. And so I am incentivized to not let you get readmitted within 30 days, even though you may have a perfectly medical reason for needing to be readmitted that has nothing to do with me making bad decisions and nothing to do with you making bad decisions, it's just medicine, but I'm going to try to prevent you from getting back into the hospital. And if you have tried to access the healthcare system, you have seen this this deterioration. And 
I see it big time. I've told you that I have very famous people, uh, uh, athletes that every one of you would know that have to call me to get their loved ones uh, cardiology consults and ENT consults because even with their fame and fortune and all their access, they still don't have the ability to navigate the healthcare system. What chance does the little guy have? You've got none. My mom right now, she's old. She's got a little bit of dementia going on. She's got this swallowing problem. And my brothers and I are talking about what we got to do. My little brother, who, God bless him, has been taking care of my mom. He took care of my dad for decades. My dad died of Parkinson's in 2016. He had a slow decline. And, you know, my brother was there for them, taking them to every hospital visit, getting them every meal, making sure they were safe. But, I mean, there's just no end to what my little brother has been doing. We, He's calling me, and we're talking about what are we going to do with my mom. She's... You know, 80 pounds, she lost 10 pounds, 70 pounds, she can't swallow. What are we going to do? And we keep talking about going to the hospital, they'll kill her. They did my dad. My dad had a breakdown with his Parkinson's. We took him to the hospital. Of course, my dad was, uh, when the nighttime came, he kind of lost his mind a bit. He was problematic, and they hit him with a bunch of Haldol, right? My dad has Parkinson's. You go and you Google right now, Parkinson's and Haldol will come up with a big red Sign saying, do not give Parkinson's patients Haldol. Of course they did it. It's what they do. Because the night shift is just trying to get through their day, or they're trying to get through their shift. My dad's acting up. It's a problem. So they just hit him with Haldol, which, you know, doesn't help him, but it puts him to sleep and keeps him quiet till they go home. This kind of stuff happens all the time. So we have to bring my mom into the hospital. And, of course, they do the hospital shuffle, which is we're there for a very specific reason to have this swallowing issue worked up and they start running every test under the sun, totally discombobulated every new doctor that comes in starting at the beginning, having no idea what's going on, my mom also having problems with uh, emptying her bladder and so we were trying to put a catheter in her and uh, she was having problems, and my brother is talking to the nurse, and they're like, well, we're going to send her down to get an ultrasound to see. My brother's like, we just came back from the ultrasound. She's got over 500 cc's. My brother's not a doctor, but he's very good at Googling stuff. And 500 cc's is unacceptable. You need to get there. And, the, you know, the, the nurse is like, oh, you know, I didn't know that. <clears throat> and it's just the Keystone Cops of care, and it's the running up the bill. Right, my mom's Medicare. So they just run up the bill with all these useless tests. And even me understanding the situation, I'm just telling my brother, just go with it. You know, you're not going to fight it. Just let them do what they want to do, but just make sure we get the stuff we need taken care of. And of course, um, you know, my mom, uh, you know, she had a rough time. Um, I still work at hospitals. I take call. I have to take care of stuff. And, you know, in my world, I do a lot of hip fractures. And it's a very common thing. Older folks, they fall, they break their hip. <clears throat> we try to get the hip fractures done. And um, I had one recently. <clears throat> um, I, you know, I, I I have to work. So I'm working during the day. I have patients to see. I have surgeries to do. Somebody gets injured, I have to squeeze that in after hours. So usually it's evening. So I finish my day. I go to the hospital and I do my case. So patient, and one of the things that we like to do in medicine when somebody has a hip fracture is we like to get their surgery done within 24 hours. In, in general, they have better outcomes. It's also when you break your hip, it's no fun to kind of lay there with a broken hip. You can't really move. And, you know, the sooner we can get the hip replacement in, the, the better it is for the patient. So 
um, you know, as the years have gone on, it's been harder and harder to get OR time. And now, um, you know, we have supposedly this hip fracture protocol at these hospitals, and I can't get OR time. And then there last night, they're just, or, you know, the other night, they're just bumping me. Oh, it's going to be 10 o'clock. It's going to be 11 o'clock. It's going to be midnight. And it's like, I don't want to do this hard case in the middle of the night with the skeleton staff. What if something goes wrong? And the point I'm trying to make is, as the system gets more socialized, as it gets more government-run, top-down, these little details are not addressed because it's not important to the system from the 30,000-foot view. And we are the people that are suffering. Um, the <clears throat> Let's play this last clip. This is one of the things, too, that is... is uh, yeah, one of the, the the women of pregnancy. Yeah, let's play that clip. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Maskey, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, We it's, can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist... I'm I'm denying that dangerous. trans people exist by asking are you? you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist. Like and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this? Where no, no, no. They're, they're, told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot I just know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. So that is showing a Senate hearing with Senator Josh Hawley talking to, uh, I think she's a Berkeley law professor, okay, a law professor, about what is a man, what is a woman that asking the question about when she uses the terminology, people capable of pregnancy, and Josh Hawley says, are you referring to women? And she goes into this, well, women and trans men and all this kind of stuff. We've just gotten to this point where, <clears throat> they're diverting all decision-making to so-called experts. These people are law school professors that are arguing what is a man and what is a woman. If we don't start changing things, we're going to lose the country altogether. Medicine is a major component of that. You all need to keep yourself informed about the issues, and you need to vote in the upcoming elections. I hope this opened your eyes a little bit about what's going on in our country and what's going on in healthcare. We'll catch you next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Have a great day. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.